HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you live from the back of Roberta's Pizza in lovely Bushwick, Brooklyn. You're listening to The Farm Report. I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks. And today we are on the line with Bill Savage of Pungo Creek Mills. Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you. So I am really excited to chat with you today. I am... I don't even know where I came across the bag of your amazing cornmeal that uh, was in my freezer. I've, I've made a couple batches of some of the most delicious cornbread in, in the history of my life and prompted me to kind of reach out today and hear a little bit more about the story behind the, this great product. So I wanted to start by getting a sense of um, how, how you became a, uh, an Indian corn grower well, it was sort of uh, by accident, I guess you would say. I just stumbled into it. Um, in, in October of 2006, I, I found a local uh, farmer who was still producing uh, this heirloom Indian corn, and he had he had gotten down to where he was just producing a small garden, maybe a, a quarter of an acre or something like that. And uh, I got talking with him, and he said his grandfather had been growing it since the, the 1870s, something like that, and so I said, well, you know, I, I got talking back and forth. I said, well, I'd like to purchase a, a bushel of it from you. So we've worked out a deal, and I purchased a bushel of the corn. And in April of 2007, I took the, the seed from that bushel of corn, and I planted the first crop, which turned out to be about 50 rows or about a half acre of corn. That September, I harvested it, and uh, we uh, were trying to make some, some reeds. We were going to sell some uh, Indian corn reeds like you'd see for decorations. That's what we figured everybody used to use this stuff for. So made those up and couldn't give them away. Uh, <laughs> we couldn't compete with some of the, the foreign markets. A lot of the, the reeds and things are coming in from Mexico and all, and it just didn't work out on that. So in November of the same year, 2007, we, we shelled the uh, corn from the remaining reeds 
and we ground it into chicken feed. I had an old uh, 1930s John Deere Let's Feed Mill. And the corn, it, it smelt so good and had a unique texture. And, and it just, it said, you know, this would be something neat to try to grind and make some bread just for fun, you know. So um, we ground it up, and my uncle and my father were helping me. So I gave them a little bit, and I took a little bit, and we all tried making some cornbread, and it was some of the best we had ever had. Uh, just, it has a flavor you know, all to its own. So uh, I decided at that point, I said, what would it take, you know, to start a small uh, grist mill again? There were none existing on the shore since about the 1940s. So uh, I went through and, and started doing a little bit of research on it. In the meantime, we planted our uh, next crop by April 2008. And this crop was roughly uh, two acres. We got that harvested out in September. And um, in December, we went ahead and uh, completed all the, the necessary red tape that it would take to start the mill up. And also in December 2008, I purchased a small, it was an 8-inch Meadows uh, tabletop little electric grist mill. And in January of 2009, uh, Pony Creek Mills began production of our heirloom Indian corn meal. That was our, our first year of actual production. Uh, during that year, in, in June, we had some uh, culinary students visit us from the University of Delaware toward the, the mill as we headed at that point, which was more or less our enclosed trailer that we had our, uh, our tabletop mill set up in and a little hand sifting rig that we had made to, to sift all the cornmeal out. So uh, we, we decided uh, after that first season that in December 2009, I said, we've, we've got to uh, try to upgrade the mill a little bit. I was getting white from hand sifting and daughters for a little more than the little 8-inch mill would keep up with. So at that point, we purchased a 12 by 28 uh, Dutch barn that we refitted as the mill house, and we purchased a locally restored, um, it was a 1935 Meadows 20-inch vertical stone mill and a 1969 Meadows cornmeal bolter to, to sift the cornmeal with. And we started powering that with a uh, formal cub uh, tractor, and then later on with a uh, 1847 Formal H tractor that we ran, ran a belt right through the wall of the mill to power it with. So in, in March of um, 2010, we took the product to the uh, Richmond, to the Food and Beverage Expo they had there every other year, and we won the Best New Food Product Award at that time. So that gave us a good opportunity prom to promote the product through numerous newspaper articles and people would stop by and, and give us a little bit more uh, publicity than we had had before. So that was a, a good thing for us. And then in June of 2010, we had several of the, the national food writers uh, toward the eastern shore uh, food producers, and, and they included our mill in the tour. So they came by, and that was a nice time, too, to get to share that with the food writers. Um, in September of, of 2010, my brother and I, attended the Virginia Folk Life Apprenticeship Program in Charlottesville, Virginia, to showcase the product. And also, uh, my brother began an apprenticeship program for a period of one year so that he could learn the art of grist milling, and he could take over the mill in my absence. That way, uh, if, if I had to step away from it or if I was sick for a time, he would be able to keep it running. So uh, that was that was in September. And in October um, 2010, we had the worst drought we've seen in probably a century, and we lost the entire crop that year. Wow. That was one of the toughest years we've had to date. Uh, but we were able to save a little bit of seed for the next year's planting, and at that time we introduced a second line of product, which was Amish-grown 
uh, yellow flint cornmeal, and that was we were going to use that to keep the mill going and um, introduce it as a second line until the 2011 crop was harvested. But that flint, it worked fairly well, but the sales just were not, um, they weren't as good as what our aluminium corn was, and everybody wanted the aluminium corn, and so we ended up dropping that line in 2012. So we we kept on, uh, we had in, uh, let's see here, in December, of 2010, we were interviewed for a TV program called Down Home Virginia. I don't know if you're familiar with that or not. Uh, no, I'll have to check it out. Well, you look it up online. If yeah. You have that on there, I believe. But um, in January of, of 2011, we were invited to attend Governor McDonald's uh, USDA reception in Richmond, and we served samples of the product and showcased the product. So I thought that was a pretty good honor, too, to be able to uh, serve product at the, the governor's behalf. Um, in August of 2011, we were invited to showcase the product and our milling process for uh, Virginia State University's Agricultural Field Day, and that we had a fun time there. Um, in September 2011, we harvested our new crop and replaced the 2010 harvest that was destroyed, and we were able to resupply all of our distributors. In December of 2012, we were interviewed for a second television program. It was Travels with Charlie, and that aired on Channel 16 out of Salisbury, Maryland. In September um, 2013, I was interviewed for a newspaper article by the Delmarva Media Group based in Salisbury, Maryland. This article, I expect it to be printed in the, the near future, probably next month, but I have to keep posted on that one. Nice. And then... Um, the last thing I have here, uh, next uh, month, which will be uh, November, which actually will be tomorrow, I guess, uh, in 2013 here, uh, my brother and myself are establishing a, um, a sister company, which is Old Dominion Pipe Company, to produce handcrafted traditional Indian corn cob pipes, and they'll be made from the surplus Pone Creek Mills Indian corn cobs. And that facility is currently under construction, and I hope it will be in operation around Thanksgiving. So we're, we're trying to make use of all of our byproducts as well and, and uh, not have so much waste as, as some production facilities would have. But that's basically our story in a nutshell. Yeah, that's a very comprehensive nutshell. Thank you. <laughs> well, I want to um, go back and, um, and chat a little bit more about some different points along the way. But before sure. we go any further, I guess we should let folks know, you know, I can tell from your accent, and I'm sure our listeners have picked up that, you are, you know, not a New York State farmer. You guys are located, uh, what, just outside of Painter, Virginia? We're Painter, Virginia. It's on Virginia's eastern shore. We're across the Chesapeake Bay. Everybody thinks about Virginia as, as the mainland on the other side, and uh, we have the, the Chesapeake Bay between us and the main part of the state. We're actually attached physically to Maryland. It's a little, just a little small peninsula, but we're located down in the lower portion of Accomack County, and... Uh, it's isolated and rural here, but we, we like it. It's very quiet and peaceful most of the time. Lovely. So the seed. Now, so corn is one of those agricultural products that you can save. Actually, the kernel of corn that you eat is the same as a kernel of corn that you would plant for for a crop. That's right? That's right. So we, go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm sorry. We, what we do when we uh, harvest the corn every year, we, we air cure it. That way we can 
get the moisture out of it, both for grinding in the mill, but also you have to get the moisture level out to store it in order to be able to replant it for the following year. And what we do, we, we converted some, um, what used to be peanut curing trailers, and we have uh, air fans that blow through the trailers. They have little ductwork underneath them, and we tarp them, and we blow a high volume velocity of air through that ductwork, and then the floor is perforated, so all that air is forced up through the floor and through the load of corn that's sitting in the trailer. And over a period of a couple months, it will, it will cure the moisture out and uh, get the corn ready for the shelling process. Now, that's like the, the thing you call the corn crib. Like if you're driving around in rural parts of the state, you'll see kind of the old buildings with like the slat-like air holes in them. Is that right? Essentially, that's what it does. I do have a circa 1918 corn crib that I moved and, and brought it to the mill, and I've used it for basic storage, but I haven't cured a lot of corn in there. But the, the peanut trailers, the idea behind it is essentially the same thing as your old uh, corn cribs. It's just that I like the, the airflow process a little bit better. If you let it sit stagnant and if your airflow is not correct or you don't have a, a, enough airflow through it, then the corn can potentially go through a heat and go bad, you know, ruin on you. So you, you've kind of, through trial and error, we've, we've learned and made mistakes. We had a crib go bad one year and, and lost, uh, well, probably five or six good pickup loads of, uh, of the Indian corn that we had to throw away because we didn't have enough airflow through it and the corn went bad and had to be destroyed. So when you, when you learn from mistakes like that, you learn not to make them again. Yeah, <laughs> you learn real quick, I'm sure. So we're Now, at the time, I mean, uh, you weren't, farming wasn't your, and still isn't your primary profession. Is that right? That's right. I, I, I've always had a hand in farming uh, to an extent since I was a boy. As soon as I could reach the pedals on the tractor, I've helped out on the family farm. But like my father, he made his living off of the farm, and farmed uh, evenings and weekends, that type of thing. He used to work for the Agricultural Research Station in Painter, and uh, I've worked at various jobs um, besides you know, the farm work. My current job right now, I'm working with uh, Virginia's Department of Transportation, but I've always had an interest in the agricultural side and farming, and, and we live on a small farm anyway, so it's nice to be able to keep that, that small farm dream alive. And... Uh, sometimes, you know, if you, if you take your time and, and put your heart into it, you know, you can come up with a product that maybe is a little bit more superior to all the, the modern mechanization they have out there. You know, we still use old-fashioned methods and, and um, antique equipment to do most of our processing, and, and I believe that through, you know, hand selection and um, some of the, the older, more laid-back techniques, I believe you can come up with a more superior uh, finished product. So that's that's more of what I've strived. It's more been quality to me than quantity. Yeah, and I would definitely, I mean, I would 100% agree having having tasted the product that it was, I have to say, you know, when I was eating, I'm like, man, if this is, if this is cornmeal, what's that other stuff I've been eating? Because that's <laughs> such a, such a unique, you know, texture and this real, almost like a real kind of almost umami uh, flavor to it, and and the recipe that you guys have printed on the back is you know much wetter than other cornbread recipes that I've used, and um, I've I've cooked it you know three times for three different dinner parties, um, 
And I have to say, it's the thing that people keep asking me about. So I think you guys, I mean, you're really hitting the mark and it's, it's really delicious. I'm really excited to kind of share your story and learn a little bit more with the listeners. We are, um, we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, I want to talk a little bit more about the, about the corn. So hang tight. You are listening to Written from the Pantheon by Iggy Dean on the Heritage Radio Network dot org. This is Chris Howell from Kane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. In our industrial world, most wines have become brands, but the wines I love are so much more. Fine wine is a civilizing substance that connects us to nature. It cannot be stamped out in a factory. If you're listening to this great show, you probably eat different. I urge you to drink different too. Go deeper. Kane5.com. All right, we are back. Uh, you're listening to the Heritage Radio Network. This is the Farm Report. You're on, and we're on the line today with Bill Savage of Pungo Creek Mills down in uh, just outside of Painter, Virginia. Now, Bill, um, the the corn that you're growing, you know, I know heirloom varieties often um, have a slightly different requirements. You know, they take a little bit longer to grow or they look a little different. Can you tell us, um, you know, if we were to walk into a field of your corn, how it would stand up in in kind of size and color to uh, the you know more conventionally conventional varieties that we're used to seeing. Well, for one thing, this corn, uh, for the most part, if it gets the, the proper fertilizer, uh, it it can grow ten to twelve feet high stalks, and that generally will uh, stand above most of your modern hybrid corn. Um, that's one obvious sign that you can look if you walked in a field of mine versus. Uh, a modern field of, say, yellow dent corn. And most of my ears on that corn will grow approximately a foot long. Um, we also have, uh, because there's different colorations in the stalks of the corn. And uh, when, when you go out there and look, you'll see a, sometimes a, a purple stalk, which generally will show a uh, red, like a bloody butcher uh, ear, will be on that one. That's where the corn comes from. They call it the old bloody bloody butcher ear, which was a bright red uh, corn. I mean, it's it's you can you can tell that corn from any other just you know in, in a quick glance. But um, the different colorations in the stalks, and um, I'd say the the toughness. Those stalks are a lot seem to be a lot thicker and tougher when you go to harvest it uh, when you when you put it through the picker, it seems like it's a lot 
more difficult for the picker to digest it than it would some of the more modern corn. So that's a few of the obvious things that uh, that you can tell about it. Um, and now this corn, uh, you know, when you harvest in the fall, is it something that you could eat fresh? You could eat, are you speaking maybe like sweet corn type? Yeah. Or you could actually try it an ear or two with it, but believe it or not, it doesn't have the flavor until you get it uh, cured. Mm-hmm. And um, if you if you pull it right out of the field, you know, in early summer, midsummer like that, it has the look and texture of sweet corn. And actually, until late in the summer, most of it still looks sort of yellow and, and white. It doesn't get its color till later on. But um, if you pull it in the fall when it's about ready to harvest, then, of course, it firms up. The, the ears get, I mean, the, the kernels get hard, and then you're, uh, you, know, you break your teeth trying to, to chew on those, <laughs> I mean, until you grind them up. So uh, that's, uh, you know, it's, it's more in that respect like your old traditional, um, you know, what they call the horse corn around here or the, or the deck corn, same, same idea there. But I think this corn, it has something different in it. It's it's more like a, I guess more natural sugars or something. There's there's a flavor difference that I can't duplicate. And I've tried other corn with my recipes and all. I can't du- duplicate the uh, the exact flavor with it. And and I don't know. You know, I mean, I'm not an expert in analysis and all that type of thing. So I don't know what causes it. But I we have a lot of customers that uh, have that celiac uh, type problem that. Can't, uh, they can't eat wheat, and they can eat our corn, of course. We also have some of the customers we've had that can't eat regular corn that can eat our corn. Huh. And I don't know why that is, but, uh, you know, other than the fact that it's it's heirloom and, it, you know, it's not a, a hybrid variety, and maybe there's something different. Maybe if, you know, if corn's genetically modified, maybe it does something and triggers an allergy, but I, I don't know that. You know, I'm just just guessing. I got you. Sometimes you try to figure out why something happens, and, uh, you know, maybe that's a, a reason behind it. Well, I think it, you definitely, like, lead lead with the flavor anyway. I'm like, it tastes good. It makes me feel good when I eat it. Now, <laughs> you guys use a vintage corn picker, and can you talk to me a little bit? Well, you know, you mentioned a couple of times in the intro section that you use a lot of older equipment, antique equipment. Um, I'm curious about a couple of things with regards to that. Is, is the, the choice for those... Um, tools because um because of the corn that the the size or the lack of uh more modern mechanization just fits the system better um and also you know where are you getting all this stuff from is there there's like some kind of vintage uh farming equipment depot that folks can head down to or how does that work well um i'm trying to answer them one at a time here that the reason that we use the, uh, the vintage equipment, the fact is, our corn, in order to uh, properly shell it, we need to get our moisture levels well below 17%. I, I try to get it at least 14% before I shell. Most combines will pick it in the, the 20% range, something like that, maybe 20 to 24, something in that order. But when they pick it, uh, they're taking it right to a granary, and the granaries have propane drying rigs, and they're huge volume rigs, and they're trying to, to do tons at a time. And so I don't have that, you know, that facility, so I don't want to shell it when it's when the moisture level is too high. I want my, uh, my corn to be at the proper level, and if I try to shell the Indian corn with a high moisture content, it tends to scalp it. In other words, it'll cut the tops off the kernels. 
and if it does that, then it ruins them. So that's one reason that uh, I've shot away from the combines. And the other way, or the other reason behind it, is I can do more hand selection. I can actually um, run my corn across a, a, a belt and check and make sure if I have a bad ear or ear that doesn't match or meet my criteria or my standards, I can pull that ear off the line before it ever goes to the shelling mechanism. And a combine can't do that. Right. So I can I can therefore produce a superior product, although it's more time-consuming and more labor-intensive. But that was a lot of the reason that I stuck with the, the older equipment. Another reason is the older equipment is uh, is cheaper than mm-hmm. what I and purchased in a, a more modern combine. And the equipment that I have, I have found it in various locations. Um, I've purchased some of it uh, fairly local. A lot of it came out of Maryland. Some of it came out of Pennsylvania. And I've looked around at farm sales. I've gone to auctions, uh, some of the antique tractor and machinery-type shows. I've picked up some of it there and just acquired a little bit along. It started out you know, more as the hobby when we were looking at the reef part of it, and I was just picking up a piece or two just for fun. And then the stuff I started picking up for fun, when I got to the point of starting the mill, I needed the stuff. So that's when I put the, the old-time equipment back in service. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, I mean, we've got equipment. That, the oldest corn shower I have, I think, is 1886. It's a H patch uh, Blackhawk, a little uh, box-type sheller. Um, you, you shell it, drop it into a, a barrel is what it was designed for. But um, the the largest sheller I have, let's see, that's a a 1940s-era uh, Minneapolis Moline stationary cylinder sheller. That one you have to hook up to a tractor, and it'll do, I think it's rated at 175 bushels an hour. I've never put that kind of volume through it, but that you drop all the corn on it, and it has a conveyor mechanism that runs it all through there and, and runs it through a cylinder and drops the cobs on one side into a trailer, and then it, it puts the shelled corn into a funnel body on the other side, so it does all the work without having to sit there and drop individual cobs into a, a small sheller. We started out doing that, and by the end of the day, your back knows it if you've been dropping you know, several hundred to a few thousand uh, corn cobs through an old-fashioned sheller. I think that's why they did away with them after a while. Right. You can feel the difference. Now, it, it definitely. So the corn... So the the corn stays on the on the stalks till you know mid fall and it's you know while it's on the stalks it's drying out and then you harvest it and you shell it right after harvest um, and then it's dried it, then and then it's air and then it's air dried to cure it to well, the point do, before you okay, go ahead I'll say what we, what we do normally I'll, I'll run you real briefly through the the process we'll we will plant it toward the end of April early May, somewhere in there. We harvest um, generally mid-September to early October, depending on when the moisture is right. And we put it, when we harvest it, we harvest it with an an old, uh, it's a Ford one-row, I think it's a 601 uh, corn picker. It's on the tractor, and you drive it through the field, and it pulls the the corn off the stalk, leaves it on the cob. It has a husking bed that pulls some of the husk off. It puts the corn in a funnel body behind the tractor that's attached to it. Then we pull that to the house, and then we have an elevator that uh, we, we drop the corn out of the funnel body onto the elevator, and that puts it into the, the converted peanut curing trailers. Then we blow the air through it for a couple months. Okay. When it comes out of the peanut trailers, then it's ready to go through the corn sheller and be stored to go to the mill. Okay. And I hear it said that the the corn sheller is powered by a hit-and-miss engine. What is that? Well, we have, um, 
I hit and miss. It's a 1947 International Harvester. Um, that engine is what we call a throttle govern. She fires, this one fires roughly every other revolution. And it it's a water-cold engine. It holds about a gallon and a half to two gallons of water, and the water just sits in a big hopper. And as she fires and runs, it actually steams the water out of it. That's what causes it to, to cool. It just distributes that heat through the water, and you'll see the steam rising off the thing. And it it's, uh, makes a unique sound when she's firing. What I used that for, I had a 1909 A. Butch and Son uh, two-hole corn sheller. And prior to the use of our um, our 1940s Minneapolis, that sheller was all I had for the first year and a half to two years of uh, of shelling the corn. So I belted that engine up there, and I, I used it to shell all the corn. Um, you know, with that method, the engine would turn the uh, the belt pulley on the corn sheller. And I still use it today because what I do a lot of times is I'll pour my shelled corn through that same unit with that engine belted up to it in order to, to go through another cleaning process. I like to go through two or three stages of cleaning process before it actually goes through the mill. So I still use it in, in more or less as a cleaning type operation now. But um, it's very efficient. That machine, that little engine probably will run all day on a gallon and a half of fuel. Wow. That's about as close to automobiles now. So... But, uh, so from the and then so one once it has gone through the corn sheller, is there another aging process before it gets milled or? Well, what we do we we uh, purchase brand new um, sandbags is the way I store it because they're polypropylene and they're woven and it allows the corn to breathe, and I put it in my greenhouse which is a temperature controlled building as well, and let it sit in there and that further dries it out, I mean, it, you'll, you'll slowly drop a percent uh, along, and what I try to do there is, is just keep my crop um, safe and stored and, and just keep it on more or less slow drying. I have an AC unit that I run in there, and it helps pull any moisture out of the building, and I keep a fan running on it 24 hours, days, uh, 365 days a year that keeps air circulating through that building, and I believe that uh, it, it helps to keep that stable. If you put that in a, a hot building, then you would have problems because it, there's no preservatives on it. So temperature control for me is, is key to try to to uh, you know keep it as high quality as possible. Uh, I want to keep a, a good crop and, and uh, you don't want weevils and that type of thing to, to develop. So Sure. So now the next step in the process is is the milling. So can you talk a little bit, I know you mentioned it in the beginning, um, but what is the what is the mill that you're using now? And um, can you just walk us through the the milling aspect of things? Okay, okay. Well, the the mill I use now, I say it's a 1935. It's a Meadows 20-inch uh, vertical stone mill. In other words, the stones instead of being horizontal, they're they're set vertically in that particular mill, and they face each other. You have a standing stone that sits still, and you have a running stone that's turned by the tractor. The tractor turns a uh, pulley on one end of the mill, and that's what does the uh, it, the revolutions of it. it. It turns up about 700 RPM, and when you pour the corn in the top, it has a hopper that holds about 150 pounds. Well, that will go through that about every half hour, 45 minutes, she'll go through that 150 pounds of corn. It grinds it, and you have a, a little wheel on the side that you adjust for how fine you want that corn to be, how how fine you want the meal to be on it, and that just 
it's more back of the eye than anything. There's no gauges to set that. You just have to learn that from time. And when it comes out of the mill, it drops into a bucket. Well, I take that bucket, and then I pour that into the bolter machine. And the, the bolter, essentially, it looks like a combine reel that's wrapped in a specific mesh uh, stainless steel screen. And what happens is when you dump the cornmeal into that, that uh, you flip a switch and a motor starts rotating that reel. And when it, as it rotates, the cornmeal falls through into one, uh, through one hopper section of it down into a tray, and then the rest of the uh, what we call the uh, the bran or larger portions that are, are too big to consume, they walk all off the end of that reel and drop into another bucket, and I, I recycle those as chicken feed. So I'm able to get uh, the, the specific um, uh, size that I'm looking for with that cornmeal. From there, the cornmeal is put into a bulk hopper, and then we have a, a hand crank that we crank out a certain amount of turns per bag, and that'll give us uh, a rough estimate of what is supposed to be in that bag. And then we put it on scale, and we finish uh, putting the, the correct uh, amount of cornmeal in there until we get it full. And from there, we go ahead and we, you know, we'll label the bag and put the, the batch and uh, date of what we're, you know, what we're processing there that particular day. And then it goes back. We, we store that in the greenhouse as well because, again, it's temperature controlled, and that's a good place to keep it until it goes to market. We generally do 300-pound batches, something like that. I, I'd rather do a lot of small batches than a few big ones because that way I can I, I keep a better handle on the market and try to keep the dates uh, in a you know a, less of time between the grind dates. That's what you're trying to do. You want to get it to market as, as quick as possible. So um, that's the basic process behind that. And one other thing about that mill, it is a local mill. Um, that mill came out of Machapunga. Uh, a, a friend of mine, Bill Jardine, has a Quail Cove company down there. I purchased that mill from him, and he had uh, bought it from a, a local farmer, and apparently it was in a mill on site there to Machapunga. Well, Bill sent it over to Meadows Mills, which is still in business in uh, North Wilkesboro, North Carolina, and they factory rebuilt it. So when I purchased it from him and put it back in service, it's the first time that mill had been in operation probably since the 1960s. It's been a long time, but it felt good to get an old Eastern Shore mill up and running again. Yeah, yeah, I'll bet. Now, the the storage for, so one once the grain has been ground, you know, then you're kind of working against the clock, as you mentioned. You There is a freshness factor there. So once folks get a bag of fresh, f- freshly ground cornmeal, I mean, if they can help themselves to not eat it immediately, which is what I'll be doing when I get my next order. Um, what is the best way for them to store it to, to make sure well, that it's fresh when they're ready to use it? Generally, the, the, the worst enemy of this type of cornmeal, because, again, there's no preservatives in it, you don't want to leave it in a hot, high-humidity environment. Um, most people I recommend, if you're just, if it's going to be a week or two, generally it's not a big issue. If you're in most people in air-conditioned homes this day and time anyway, even in the the warmer weather, but if you're worried about it for just a, a few weeks to a month or so, put it in the refrigerator. And if, if you'd like to store it for months at a time, we have actually done a test and we have stored some for up to a year in a freezer. We put it in a plastic bag, seal it up, and put it into a, a chest freezer and brought it out a year later, it was still fine. So you can extend the date you know, uh, pretty pretty far in the future if you'd like to. It, it's it's bad for me because I can't sell you cornmeal if you're stored it in there. But uh, <laughs> then again, you know, it, it's 
that's the way to do it if you're going to if you're going to store that for months at a time. But most people can't let it last that long. They, they tend to eat it up a little sooner than that. So now, if folks want to to purchase a corn, they can definitely visit the website www.pungocreekmills.net. Um, and then I know you're available in a number of locations around the Virginia area, which are listed on your website. Uh, is there any other way that would be good for folks who are kind of looking to taste your corn meal, or is visiting the website probably the best? Well, the, the website's one way, and we're, we're working, um, working on our PayPal account currently. We had a, a couple issues in trying to uh, get that running a little bit more efficiently. We also we accept personal check if, if people would like to mail us a check for the, the corn they'd like to purchase. Um, they can contact me uh, directly. I can give you an uh, email address. It might be the easiest way. Sure. Or a telephone number. Um, the yeah. email address, okay, it's... Um, Pungo, P-U-N-G-O, Creek Mills, with the at symbol, Verizon.net is my email address. And if you don't have email, I have a phone number of 757-442-6327. And I'd be glad to to talk with them as far as uh, prices and and shipping boxes for uh, retail. We do, again, we have some... Wholesale locations are primarily in Virginia. We we sell a lot to Whole Foods in Charlottesville, uh, Richmond, Virginia Beach. We sell some to historical locations such as Monticello, and um, I sell some locally on the shore. I don't know if you've heard of the Blue Crab Bay Company. Yeah, Have sure. You? Okay, we sell to them, and they, they actually ship it sometimes for us internationally. I don't get into shipping it overseas a whole lot because it's, it's so much it's more. It's a real headache. It, it's with the customs and that type of thing. Yeah. And, if you're shipping powder and that type of stuff back and forth, I, I, just, <laughs> I said sometimes I'd rather let somebody else deal with that headache. But, uh, but they do ship some. I, I've had emails from all over the world, you know, people that would like to purchase a little bit of it, and I, I generally refer them to them in, in that case. Um, but uh, we have, like I said, we have several small locations here in Virginia, and I know it doesn't help people in New York uh, on, on that, but I, I'll work with you. If, if anybody wants it, I'll. If I have to sell it myself directly from the mill, I'll do that because we, you know, we do have an online price for uh, people that just don't have access any other way to get a hold of it. So Excellent. We'll, Great. we'll definitely work with you on that. Well, Bill, we are unfortunately out of time, but thank you so much for um, taking some time out of your day to tell us a little bit more about the corn. And folks, definitely do yourself a favor, buy a couple bags of the cornmeal and enjoy some great cornbread. Thanks a lot, Bill. Well, I appreciate it, and thank you for having me on the program. Again, that's Pungo Creek Mills. Learn more about them by visiting www.pungocreekmills.net. Thanks so much for tuning in. This has been another episode of The Farm Report. This, like all 30 of our live weekly shows, are available for free. Check out our website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. If you like what you hear, please consider clicking that Donate tab and becoming a member today. Thanks so much for listening and stay tuned in. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. 
To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.